Scripture reading will be from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. One day, apparently a group of first graders had just completed a tour of a hospital, and the nurse who had directed them asked if there were any questions. Immediately a hand went up. How come the people who work here are always washing their hands? Well, after the laughter kind of died down, the nurse gave a very wise answer. Well, they're always washing their hands for two reasons. First, they love health, and second, they hate germs. There are a number of areas in life where love and hate actually go together. We think of them as opposites, having nothing to do with themselves, but that's not true. The psalmist says in Psalm 97, verse 10, let those who love the Lord, what? Hate evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Last week, we talked a lot about the command to love that's written on our hearts now. The fact that we're commanded by Jesus himself that you must love one another. Love is sort of like like exercise equipment, isn't it? I've known people who get all excited about health. I've got a brother like that. Go out and they buy either exercise equipment or they run out and get a membership at a gym. And they get this membership card or the key fob. Either way, they're they're all gung-ho for a short period of time. It's hard work. And after a while, they've just stopped using it for all kinds of good reasons. But they have a card. They got that key file. They got a membership. But it's not doing them any good. Folks, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have the love. We have the, in fact, God has given us His love for one another, but it is of no use if we don't exercise it, if we don't decide to put it into practice. Now, love is very broad, you know, the, the, the word love. just covers all kinds of stuff, and people can misuse it or abuse it because they kind of twist its meaning. And this morning in John's letter, in the passage that was read for us, John warns us, that there is a wrong kind of love, a love that God hates. This is a love for what the Bible calls the world. In verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. That's his premise. 
for this whole passage that we're looking at this morning. And in it we find four reasons why Christians should not love the world. First of all, because of what the world, what the world is. Now, in order to understand what John is trying to get at here, what he's saying, we need to understand that the New Testament word for world has at least three different meanings depending on how it's used. And oftentimes, we have that same, those same meanings in English as well. Sometimes it means the physical world, the earth. In, in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, it says, "...the God who made the world..." The physical earth, the physical world, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And here he's referring to the physical planet earth. It also refers to the world of humanity. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. God so loved all people so much that he gave his only son. Sometimes these two ideas actually appear in the same verse. In, in John chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world, and, and though the world, talking about the earth, was made through him, the world, mankind, did not recognize him. Now the warning to us against loving the world is not against the world of nature. He has given us nature to enjoy. He's given us, given us the earth to enjoy and, and to be able to see his glory and all his power and might and majesty. Neither is it against the world of mankind. God loves them so much he sent his only son. We're not to hate mankind. The world that John speaks of here as our enemy and that which we are not to love is an invisible system opposed to God and opposed to Christ. Now, we, we actually use the word world in that, way, in that way fairly often as a system. For example, a TV announcer says, and now we bring you the news from the world of sports. Obviously, the world of sports is not another planet, although some may feel that. But it's an organized system with a set of ideas, people, activities, purposes, language. It's all encompassed about sports. We talk about the world of politics, very different from the world of sports. We talk about the world of entertainment. We talk about the world of fashion. Well, the world in the Bible is Satan's system of opposing the work of Christ on earth. It's actually the opposite of what is godly, holy, and spiritual. And that's what John is getting at here. And in 1 John chapter 5, actually in verse 19, it says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us that Satan has a whole organization of evil spirits. He describes them as principalities and powers, working with him and influencing the affairs of this world. And just as the Holy Spirit uses people to accomplish God's will on earth, Satan too uses people to fulfill his evil purposes, those who are not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the vast majority don't even know they're being used. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, the first two verses, whether they realize it or not, that people are energized by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And Jesus himself in Luke 16 called them the children of the world. Listen, a Christian is a member of the human world, but we, and we live in the physical world, 
but we do not belong to that spiritual world that is Satan's system that is opposing God. If you belong to the world, Jesus said in John 15, if you belong to Satan's system, in other words, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to that world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The world, then, is not a natural habitat for believers. This is not where we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul tells us. And all our resources for living on earth come from the Father in heaven. We are in the world, but we are not of the world, Jesus says. Kind of like a scuba diver, right? The water is not man's natural habitat. We're not equipped for life naturally underwater. So they have to take special equipment and other paraphernalia in order for them to be able to breathe and sustain and swim well. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit living in us and the spiritual resources that we have in prayer, in Christian fellowship, and the Word and the Holy Spirit working in us as well, we'd never make it on the earth because this is not our habitat. But there is a second and an even more serious reason why Christians should not or must not actually love the world. is because of what the world does to us. Look at the second half of verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. That's what the love of the world does to us. Worldliness is not so much a matter of activity as it is an attitude. Because worldliness is a matter of the heart, just as loving and obeying God is a matter of the heart. Worldliness not only affects our response to the love of God, it also affects our response to the will of God. See, doing the will of God is a joy because we are living in the love of God. It it should be a joy. It should be a natural outcome. If you love me, Jesus says, obey my commands. It sounds, sounds like this command thing, but it should be a natural thing that happens as we love him. But when the believer loses that enjoyment of the Father's love, they find it so hard to then obey the Father's will. And when we put these two together, we actually uh, have a a practical definition of worldliness. Anything in a Christian's life that causes them to lose their enjoyment of the Father's love or their their desire to do the Father's will, this worldly must be avoided. How How we respond to the Father's will through our personal devotional life And doing the Father's will in our daily conduct, in our daily lifestyle, are two really good tests of whether we are worldly or not. You know, there are a lot of things in this world that are clearly wrong. Clearly wrong, and God's Word identifies them as sin. Black and white, stealing, lying, murder, sexual sin. They're all laid out very clearly in a number of places. And, uh, Ephesians 4 and 5 is a good place to start. And are the acts, um, th- there are also the acts of the sinful nature that are laid out very clearly, which include wrong attitudes and words and actions. There's little to no debate about what those are. But there are areas in our Christian conduct, in our Christian life, at times that tend to be a little bit in the gray area. Christians can disagree at times. And in cases like that, we need to apply the test to our own personal life. 
and be brutally honest with ourselves. It's sometimes hard to do for ourselves. We can be brutally honest with others, can't we? That's easy. But with ourselves, it's harder. We have to self-examine. Is our activity or our habit that I have, whether bad, neutral, or even basically good, is it taking me away from my relationship with God and keeping me from allowing God to be the Lord of my life? Now John points out in our passage that the world system, directed by the prince of the world, uses three devices uh, or three weapons to trap Christians and to bring them down and make them fall. Verse 16, for everything in the world, okay, Satan's system, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, this is something brand new that... John had an aha moment. This, this, is, this is from way back. Satan used these three things to trap Eve way back in the Garden of Eden. It's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, all in one, one verse. When the women saw the lust of the eyes, that the fruit of the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, again, the lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life, she took some and ate it. The lust of the flesh includes anything that appeals to a person's fallen nature. The flesh doesn't mean body here. It actually refers to the basic sinful nature that people are born with, which also makes them blind to spiritual truth. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. You see, when we trust in Christ, we now participate in a divine nature. We've talked about that. That's, that's actually in Second Peter chapter 2. We are a new creation, Paul tells us. The old is gone. I mean, it is gone. The new is here. 1 Corinthians 5, we're different now, so, so different that Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 9 that we have taken off, past tense, we have taken off our old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, God has given us certain desires. And these desires are good. Things like hunger and thirst. We've got to have those desires. We're going to die if we don't. A desire to sleep when we're tired. And yes, even the desire for sex. They're all wonderful things given by God for us to enjoy. But when we allow or we give permission to the flesh nature to control those desires, they then become sinful lusts. Hunger and eating is not evil, but gluttony is sinful. Thirst is not evil, but drunkenness is a sin. Sleep is a gift of God, but laziness is shameful, according to the Scripture. Sex is God's precious gift when used correctly, but you, when used wrongly, it becomes immorality and a detestable thing in God's eyes. Even our emotions. God has given us wonderful emotions if controlled and used correctly. Even the emotion of anger. There are injustices that we are to be angry about. But today people flip out over the simplest of things. Even Christians, but... 
But we, we tend to make it religious sounding and try to convince ourselves that our anger is godly, and we use the term righteous indignation. I don't think there's anywhere in Scripture that talks about people having righteous indignation. Those, those two words, righteous indig, indig, and indignation, are used of God. God, in, in uh, Psalm chapter 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. But you see, God can do that because He is purely righteous. There is no sin. There is no darkness in Him. But people, (laughs) I rarely, if ever, have seen righteous indignation in people. It's usually prideful indignation or selfish indignation. And that's sin. That's how the world of Satan works. It appeals to the normal appetites and tempts us to satisfy them in a forbidden way. Everything that God says in His Word about flesh is negative. In the flesh there is no good thing, Paul says in Romans 7. The flesh profits nothing in John chapter 6. A Christian is to put no confidence in the flesh, Paul tells us in Philippians 3. In Romans 13 we're told that we are are to make no provision for the flesh. The lust of the flesh, the desire for wanting more. Just a couple of weeks ago I learned a new word. Maybe it's generational. That's apparently a thing today. Is FOMO. How many of you heard that? Okay. A few. Younger ones, mainly. I get it. FOMO. Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. I looked it up. There's actually a dictionary definition. The feeling of apprehension that one is either not in the know about or missing out on information, events, experiences, or life decisions that could make one's life better. Fear of missing out. Always wanting more. Willing to give up what you have in order to possibly gain something better. Today, people hate to make commitments too far in in the future, right? I mean, what if something better comes up? Then I'm stuck. But it shows a lack of contentment. I, I know someone in our own extended family who is always wanting more, a better job, a bigger house, a bigger and fancier car, willing and actually giving up something wonderful in hopes of achieving something better, something that will make them happier, make them content. But it won't. Do you know why they are not content? Why they have the sense of FOMO, fearing, fear of missing out? That person has not found peace and contentment with God, with Christ. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. How? It's only through Christ. He wrote to Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. They go hand in hand. Without godliness, without a true relationship with Christ, if we can't learn to be content in Christ, we'll never be content. The lust of the flesh. The second device that Satan's evil world system uses to trap Christians is the lust of the eyes. Even the eyes can have an appetite, and it often feeds the lust of the flesh. We actually use, a fr- use that phrase, uh, feast your eyes, on this, right? 
You know, you, we, we talking about Nancy and myself, we used to enjoy going to restaurants that had these all-you-can-eat buffets. They were so great. Um, Golden Corral. That was a biggie. And you'd go in and you'd see all that stuff. And it was all so good. And the smell was there. All you can eat. And we keep going back and going back and going back. And then came the desserts and the ice cream and all the good stuff there. And we reasoned that we paid the full price so as good stewards of our money that God has given to us, I mean, that's what God wants, right? We wanted to make sure that we got our money's worth. And that became our excuse for gluttony. <laughs> what we allow our eyes to linger on and spend time on and to contemplate, whether it's food, whether it's entertainment on TV, whether it's the internet, whether it's our little cell phones, our minds get involved and can so easily end up in sin. Remember the example of Achan in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, when Achan was caught... He confessed, listen to his confession, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, lust of the eyes, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, lust of the flesh, and took them, pride of life, to make his life better. The eyes, like the other senses, are a gateway into our mind. The lust of the eyes can even include intellectual pursuits that are contrary to God's Word. There's an intense pressure today to make Christians think the way the world thinks. And it's had a tremendous effect on the church as a whole and many individual churches. God warns us against the counsel of the ungodly. It doesn't mean that Christians ignore education or even secular learning. It does mean, however, that they need to be careful not to let intellectualism crowd God into the background and take, allow that to be in the forefront. Then the third device Satan uses is the boastful pride of life. The Greek word for pride was used to describe a braggart who is trying to impress people with their importance. People have always tried to outdo others in their spending and accumulating. We've got the whole thing with the Joneses versus the Smiths uh, kind of thing uh, that we talk about, and even in their knowledge. There's this feeling out there which ties into the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh that because I've finally got a lot of stuff, houses, cars, appliances, fancy wardrobe, salary, education, I've got the doctorate too, three, four doctorates, that I've made it and I'm so proud of myself. Look at me, it says. I've climbed the ladder, I've achieved, I'm important, so now you've got to listen to me. It's amazing what stupid things people will do and buy just to make an impression. Even in churches, almost every church has someone who has fallen into the pride of spiritual life. They feel for one reason or another they are more spiritually in tune than anyone else. They've kind of learned all they need to learn. They've, they've heard it all. They, 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 don't, they don't need to learn. Many years ago, there, uh, there was an aunt in our extended family, now passed away, who didn't feel she really needed to go to church because you know, she had heard it all. Her words. I've seen it in almost every church I've been in. Folks, 
Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And he usually does it through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when that happens, they will lose their enjoyment in the Father's love and the desire then to do the Father's will. You know this never happens overnight, right? Very gradual. Can't even notice it sometimes. He sneaks in, it creeps up on us if we're not vigilant. First, it's a friendship with the world. Wanting to be a part of and not to be considered extreme. Next, a Christian becomes spotted or stained by the world. And James 1.27 uh, calls it being polluted by the world. Gradually, the believer begins accepting and adopting the ways and the thoughts and the patterns of the world. Then all of a sudden, we find that the world, oh, this is so cool, it doesn't hate me anymore. I'm getting along. And friendship with often leads to love of. And Satan has fooled us into thinking that we're being loving we're being compassionate, we're being understanding, we're being inclusive. Unfortunately, so many Christians begin to then conform to the world. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of, or to, to Satan's pattern. That's what he's talking about, the pattern of the world. is Satan's pattern. John, in our passage here, do not love the world. Same thing, same message, same, uh, same command. So is it really... Really that big of a deal? Well, yeah, it is. Because those who conform to the world will come under God's judgment. Well, I, I didn't think we are going to be judged. You know, if you confess your sin, God, God uh, promises to forgive. Well, that's true. But if we don't confess and we continue to live in sin, in unconfessed sin, moving in line with the world, there will be loving judgment. I didn't say easy judgment, though. God in His love will judge. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. This is the passage that we usually use during our communion time. Verse 29, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink, what? Judgment on themselves. The word discern, those who without discerning the body, the word discern here means to separate, to make a distinction, to discriminate, to prefer. God is saying that if we come to the table and partake of the most precious sacrifice that Christ has made for us, and yet we're living our life any way we want to, with unforgiven sin in our heart, Paul says you're not separating yourself from the world to Christ. What He has done for you is not important to you. You're not making a distinction, Paul says, between your sinful self-life and your life in Christ. You're not discriminating, making Christ your preference, making Him Lord. And Paul says that there are severe consequences. There are always consequences to sin. This is why Paul continues to say there in verse 30, Many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But... If you were more discerning of the body of Christ as you partake, 
He goes on to say, with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. That's loving discipline. Hard, oftentimes, but it's loving discipline. When there is no confessing, when there is no discernment as to what Christ has done for us on the cross, when there is no separation from the world, God will lovingly discipline His own. And it's not usually just a little time out in the corner. Sometimes it's through weakness. Sometimes it's through illness. Sometimes it's through death. We don't lose our sonship. We don't lose our salvation, but we do lose our testimony if we continue to live in sin. We do lose our usefulness or effectiveness in His work. In extreme cases, some, as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they lost their lives. See, God wants first and foremost to save us, to bring us back, to reestablish that relationship with Him, that unity with Him. And if the person doesn't allow that to happen, God will guard and protect His bride, the church. Whether He takes them out permanently, <laughs> as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, or takes them out of the church body, He is serious about sin, and we need to be as well. John says, do not love the world because of what the world is, because of what the world does to us, and thirdly, because of what a Christian is. And this is really the crux of the matter, our new nature in Christ and how we keep from getting worldly. And, from what we, uh, and for that, we go back to verses 12 to 14, which we kind of skipped as we talked about some of these other things. John uses three titles, three nouns, when he talks about believers, children, young men, and fathers. I'm writing to you, dear children, the Greek actually says little children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. John here is showing a progression that there ought to be in our faith growth. He starts with little children. This actually refers to all believers when we come to Christ. All believers have been born into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, and our sins have been forgiven. It's a wonderful thing. That's our starting point. And just that fact alone that we are in God's family, sharing His nature, ought to discourage us from becoming friendly with the world. James 4.4 speaks very strongly about those who are friendly with the world. You adulterous people, strong don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Friendship with the world means enmity with God. But just as babies and infants and little children are not supposed to remain little and immature, they're supposed to grow, so we are to grow spiritually. And that's where John goes next. Little children grow up to be young men or young women. In verse 14, John depicts a young, young man as being strong. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God lives in you, and, and you have um, overcome the evil one. They overcome the evil one who is the prince of this world system. How do they overcome him? Through the Word of God. 
The Word of God lives in you, John says. He was praising them for that. The young men are not yet fully mature, but they are in the process of maturing, and they use the Word of God effectively. And we need to remember that the Word is the only weapon that will defeat Satan. Paul in Ephesians 6 refers to, to it as the sword of the Spirit. It's a battle weapon. It's what Jesus used when He was tempted. Then John also says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. The fathers refer to mature believers who, who have this intimate personal knowledge now of God. Because they know God and His Word so well, they are very aware of the dangers of the world. And knowing God, having such a personal deep relationship with Christ, should keep us from wanting to live on those substitute pleasures that the world is always offering to us. So as a Christian stays away from the world, because of what the world is, a satanic system that hates and opposes Christ, because of what the world does to us, it attracts us to live out our, sinful, out our sinful substitutes. And because of who we are, children of God, and the last thing he says is because of where the world is going. John says, verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. One day that whole system will be gone. And the pleasant attractions within it will all pass away. So what's going to last only what is part of God's will. Hebrews 11.13 tells us that we are to be foreigners and strangers on earth. In verse 16, he tells us that we are to be longing for a better country, for a heavenly one, because this one's going to pass away. Warren Wiersbe writes in his commentary, says, John was contrasting two ways of life, a life lived for eternity and a life lived for time. A worldly person lives for the pleasures of the flesh, but the dedicated Christian lives for the joys of the Spirit. A worldly believer lives for what he can see, the lust of the eyes, but a spiritual believer lives for the unseen realities of God. A worldly-minded person lives for the pride of life, the vain glory that appeals so to men, but a Christian who does the will of God lives for God's approval, and he abideth forever." In fact, that's how John ends this section, the end of verse 17. The world's desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's the only way. That is the only way. Long after this world system with its flaunted culture and its proud philosophies, its egocentric intellectualism and its godless materialism, long after all that's gone and forgotten, long after our planet as replaced by the new heavens and new earth, God's servants will remain sharing the glory of God for all of eternity. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7.31 that the world in its present form is passing away. It's in the process of passing away. It's already in that process. God's, uh, Paul's telling us everything around us is changing, but the things that are eternal never change. The Christian who loves the world and wants to experience everything in the world would never have peace and security because they're, linked, they're linking their life with that which is in a state of change, state of flux. Jim Elliott, a missionary martyr, you've heard, heard of him to the Alka Indians of South America, once wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's long-term thinking. That's eternity thinking. 
Whoever does the will of God lives forever. There's a statement of certainty for you from John. The question is, am I willing to do the will of God? Or better yet, am I doing the will of God? Well, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what that whole will thing is. You know, I've been searching for 50 years. I still don't know what God wants me to do. Part of the benefit of salvation is knowing God's will. In fact, God wants us, as Paul tells us in Colossians 1.9, to be filled with the knowledge of His will. God's will is not something that we, we consult with occasionally or, or kind of look as an end game or an end goal. It's something that completely controls our lives, and we should, we should be doing it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said in Matthew 7.21 that the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is, is only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And we can talk a lot about God's will for us, but that's not what pleases Him. Talk doesn't do anything. It's the one who does His will that pleases Him. One commentator put it this way, discovering and doing God's will is something like learning to swim. You must get into the water before it becomes real to you. The more we obey God, the more proficient we become in knowing what He wants us to do. So how do we discover God's will? I'm going to be closing with this topic here. It's, it's a big topic, a lot to say about that, but let me give, give you just a few quick pointers. The process begins with surrender. Surrender. Romans 12, 1 and 2, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not conform to the pattern of, of this world. Then you'll be able to test, you'll be able to check out, you'll be able to examine, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to scrutinize, and having done all that, then approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. A person who loves the world will never know the will of God in this way. Self gets in the way. My desires, my druthers, my hopes, my dreams, we need to give them all up. Or something much better. And you know, God's will is not, like somebody described it, a spiritual cafeteria where you can pick and choose what you want and leave the rest. The will of God is something that we accept in its entirety, involves personal surrender. Secondly, God, God reveals His will through His Word. And without that first step of surrender in place, the second step is, is basically worthless. Your word, we read in Psalm 119, is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. Those who read God's word daily and meditate on it find God's will there, and they apply it to their everyday life. As we read God's word, we need to ask the question, how, how should I, in what I just read, how should that affect me? How should I change my life? And the third way that God leads us in His will is through prayer and the working of His Spirit in our hearts. Paul tells us in Romans 8.14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Paul tells us that uh, we, we, uh, as we pray about a decision, this, this Holy Spirit is going to be speaking to us. And the more we're in the habit of praying, like the swimming in the water, and listening, the easier it becomes to discern that inner voice of the Holy Spirit. But listen carefully, that inner voice should always be agreeing with God's Word. We should never follow that inner voice alone. It should always be tested against God's Word. And, and, and the Holy Spirit won't mind you testing it. The Holy Spirit says you need, you need to be testing every spirit. It's so easy for people to say, well, you know, God told me to. 
we need to always test it by Scripture because it's very possible that our own flesh, our own desires rise up and the more we think about it, the more we think about it, the more we become convinced in ourselves that oh, this is probably coming from God. The other reason we need to test it by the Bible is because Satan too, as you well know, can put those thoughts and put ideas into our minds and make them sound really spiritual. He did that with Jesus using bits of Scripture. Another way to discern God's will, fourth way, is through circumstances. But that should never be our first go-to. God does move in amazing ways to open and close doors, but we should test this kind of leading with the Word of God and not test God's clear teaching by our circumstances. That's why it's so important to be surrendered first and be consistently be in His Word and in prayer because God will never contradict His Word. But if we don't know what His Word says, it's easy to get lost and go down the wrong path. As we well know, God's ultimate will for all of us, no matter who we are, is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. How to go about doing that is what He wants to show us on a daily basis throughout our lives. Let me close with this thought. John says, don't love the world with anything in the world or anything in the world. What in the world do you love? What in the world do you love? What is something you're not willing to give up? Does it bring glory to God? Can you say you are doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus? Which means it's according to His will. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it what? All to the glory of God. In Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way we can do that is to have that heart change. See, human hearts lust for things. It lusts for what will make us happy. Money, possessions, sexual experiences, control, approval from others, pleasure, comfort, food, drink. These are all lusts of the flesh. Lust is not just sexual. Lust is a seeking out of what will make us happy, what will make us feel important, what will satisfy us. And when we don't get what we want, we often get either angry or depressed, and then we end up doing more of what we ought not to be doing. Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. What is your heart lusting for? That becomes the root of the issue. That's what needs to be dealt with. That's what needs to be repented of. But rather than going to the root, you know, we tend to work on behavior modification, right? Let me try to change. I'm going to try this program. I'm going to try this diet. I'm going to try to be calmer. I'm going to try not to get angry so easily. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. (laughs) I don't know about you. Most of the time we fail. Why? Because our attempts at behavior modification are superficial. You see, anger is, a cause, is caused by an underlying issue. Depression is caused by an underlying issue. Obesity is caused by an underlying issue. A desire to control people in situations is caused by an underlying issue. And we have to figure out, with God's help, what that underlying issue is, repent of it, and then the behaviors will begin to dissipate. We have to go to the heart Because it's a heart issue, not usually a physical issue. It's a sin issue, and we need to repent. Galatians 5.16 says, If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Walk by the Spirit. That's exactly what John is saying. And the only way we can do that, folks, is having victory in Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can give us that victory. He gives us victory over the lust of the flesh, over the lust of the eyes, and over the pride of life. And it can only be accomplished in Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone gives us a victory. And we're going to sing that together as we close here this morning. Victory in Jesus. My Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him. And all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. And I would ask that as as we sing this, if there's a struggle that you've been having in your life that you just can't seem to get over, would you... Go and ask the Holy Spirit to, 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 to give you an idea what the issue is, what the base issue of it is, what the sin issue might be. Repent of it and ask God to give you victory over that, and he will begin transforming your life. Father, thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you that you know us intimately and you want to live, have us live our lives in, in victory. And, and we all have different issues that, that we struggle with from time to time. And I pray, Father, that we will be quick to self-examine and seeing if those things are glorifying to you or not. Father, this morning, I pray that you give us victory. In Jesus' name, amen.